Hello, I'm Stephen Cole, and welcome to Season 2 of the Answers Project podcast from CGTN Europe. Every week, we'll be trying to find answers, or at least make some sense of, one of the trickiest questions facing us in this increasingly complicated world. We've got access to some of the best brains on the planet to see if they can help shed light on some of the most pressing ethical, scientific, geopolitical and philosophical quandaries. And I'm joined by Mari Beveridge, who's going to help me unravel this week's question. Mari, what are we asking this week? This week, Stephen, we are asking, do we need exams in schools? Well, that question will be of particular interest to the millions of students around the world who couldn't sit their exams because of COVID. That's right. I mean, here in the UK, all summer exams were cancelled for the second year in a row and replaced with teacher assessments. And it's not just in the UK that changes have been made to the exam system, is it? No, the pandemic has derailed exams everywhere. Uh, last summer in France, high school students couldn't sit the baccalaureate exam, which is the final high school exam in France. And it was the first time since its introduction under Napoleon in 1808 that the exam didn't take place in its traditional form. Uh, even the protests of May 1968 didn't prevent the exam from going ahead. Is that right? Well, uh, we, just more confirmation that we're living in unprecedented times. Exactly, we are. And, uh, you know, in Norway, all written exams for high school students were cancelled last year, uh, although uh, there wasn't much uproar because, unlike the UK, the Norwegian high school coursework makes up 80% of a student's grade and exams are only worth 20%. So the exams aren't as important there, really. Well, that seems manageable, but I think um, Italy, Spain, the Netherlands all had to cancel their high school exams, didn't they? Yes. So, as we were saying earlier, the pandemic really has done its best to, to ruin the examination process, especially in 2020. But by and large, it feels like everyone's managed one way or another, and which is why lots of people are now asking this question, do we really need exams? And, and I'm interested to hear what you think of exams before I bring in our first guest. Well... Exams, uh, you have to have some kind of examination to perhaps measure people's capabilities, whether they're academic capabilities or otherwise, I suppose. Yeah, well, I would agree with that. I think that that's, uh, that, that's fair. Um, to tackle this question, I really want to bring in our first expert uh, because she makes a really important point about the phrasing of our question. My name is Marie Rosgaard and I'm an associate professor of Japanese studies at the University of Copenhagen. My research centers on Japanese education primarily and I work with Japanese educational reform and cram school business and moral education. So we're going to get into Marie's specialty subject in a moment, which is Japanese education. But first, I, I want you to listen to what she had to say when I asked her our question, do we need exams in schools? Um, she said, we? You know, who are you talking about when you say we? I think a lot of hinges on who we is. <laughs> Who's the we? Because states wants exams to make sure that, that they can benchmark that, that all the students reach a certain level of learning. They want to make sure that, that their schooling is effective. And also it functions, in not maybe not so much for the state, but for other institutions of learning, it functions as a selection mechanism so that you get the students that are best suited for, for the next level or whatever level you're heading at. And of course, for the schools, it means that they get also evaluated based on, on how well their students perform. So it can also be a, something that determines a hierarchy among schools. 
So if that is the we, yes, then definitely exams are very necessary and, and useful. Now, there are two important points there, because I think she's absolutely right about all students, they need to be measured to reach a certain level of learning. But then she goes on to talk about the schools are also <laughs> measured. But both makes a lot of sense, uh, exams being supported by the state and by institutions of learning, because basically they're an easy and useful success metric for how well schools are doing. Yeah, I think it's a really important jumping off point, looking at who benefits from the exam process, because Marie would maybe argue that whilst exams are good for the state and good for institutions, they often aren't great for individuals. But if the we is you and me and, and our children, <laughs> uh, then maybe it's a different question, because uh, I think we most of us have experienced the disappointment at not being able to perform what you thought you could normally do because you got nervous or you got the one question that you never really learned how to grapple with or then so on and so forth. I guess we've all heard all of these excuses or explanations. So for the individual, unless you see it as a competition, then I'm not so sure that exams are a very good way of, of finding out what people can actually do. So this is really interesting, you know, the pressure on individuals to perform in exams. And, you know, we can all remember that feeling of your mind going totally blank as, as you sit down. I remember vividly, Mari, and I remember walking out of my maths O-level because I don't think there was a single question I could answer. And, and she is right. I'm not so sure she says that exams are a very good way of finding out what people can actually do. And a lot of the pressure comes from, from parents and that culture of good exam grades is especially prevalent in Asian countries and particularly Southeast Asian countries. You know, I have mentioned before, I went to school in Singapore and even at an international school, the culture around studying, it, it was intense. It, it wasn't cool to bunk off and smoke behind the bike sheds or whatever. It was cool to get good grades. And I know I'm making it sound like a, a nerd utopia, but there was a lot of pressure. And it, it's the same in China, huge pressure around exams. And successfully so. You think of uh, how successful Singapore is certainly uh, academically and China is at the moment from what I read reforming its education policies because China uh, has announced a ban on written exams for six and seven year olds because of the pressures on small children in what is a highly competitive system. Yeah. So students used to be required to take exams every year from the first year of primary school. So I think these changes are probably badly needed. And the, the, being examined so frequently, right up to a university entrance exam at the age of 18, but they are rethinking that. Yeah, and, and it's fantastic that they are, because, you know, these highly competitive environments often have deadly impacts and consequences. One of the reasons that I want to speak to Marie Rosegard is because she specialises in Japanese education. And as I mentioned earlier, I was really interested in the exam culture in Japan. Like Singapore and, and like China, it is intense. It really is intense scrutiny all the time. And I know there are a lot of exam-related suicides among teenagers who will feel the the brunt of the pressure in Japan, certainly. Sadly, yeah, that's true. You know, there are some shocking statistics around that issue. According to a 2015 government paper examining 40 years of, of data, there is one day in Japan where more people under the age of 18 commit suicide than any other date, and that date is September 1st. Now, the reason for that, according to the government's analysis, is the mental pressures that students face adjusting to school after a few months away. Oh, that's terrible. Teenagers 
as we both know, are incredibly vulnerable, and that sort of pressure must be overwhelming on them at the most vulnerable time of their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And in Japan, entry exams are incredibly important. So you sit high school entry exams, university entry exams, and you basically never stop studying for either of these. People will start two years in advance, and students who can afford it go to juku schools. Have you heard of these? No, I don't know of, of juku schools. Juku or cram schools in Japan are an after-school study group that will help you cram for your entrance exams. Here is Marie Rosegard again. There's a lot of institutions that fall under this heading, but mostly it's a school after school where you pay privately for private tutoring to better your chances at all the entrance exams. The Japanese system has entrance examinations like many systems, but unlike the Danish systems, we, we don't have entrance exams. So this is an interesting point. All countries put different weighting on entrance or exit exams. For example, in the UK, your final exams at university are hugely important. Will you get a first or a distinction or a 2-1 or whatever? In Japan, the most important thing is just getting into the best university, getting into a prestigious school. And then after that, your grade doesn't really matter so much. I think the issue here is being judged perhaps too early. I know with my sons, I had to take them to a separate evening class to improve maths to, so they could progress uh, further. But I suppose some people would argue that these exam preparation schools are simply teaching students, basically, which is what I did, uh, how to pass exams rather than giving them a rounded education. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you're not the only person who has raised this issue. I spoke to Robert Winston, who's a professor of science and society and emeritus professor of fertility studies at Imperial College in London. And I asked him what he thought of our current approach to exams in the UK and whether we're simply, as you're saying, simply teaching kids how to sit exams instead of actually learning anything. There's no question that that's what we're doing. We are teaching people to do exams. And of course, those who are good at teaching how to pass an exam will help. I myself, I left school in 1959, uh, but even then I was taught to deal with exams, but at least the examinations I was doing were much more broad. And so I was expected to be able to write at least and have a reasonably good background in reading, which wasn't just in fact science. So what he's saying is to be a scientist, which he is, it's about more than just doing the sums. You have to acquire a broad range of skills and you should be tested on those as well. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's an important point. You know, education shouldn't just be about memory tests. Professor Winston's saying that exams for young adults need radical reform in the UK. We certainly need to assess children in school because obviously we have to have the measure of what they are managing to accomplish but I think exams at the age of 15 are unnecessary and I think A-level examinations need radical reform because I don't believe that they educate in the best way possible. The restructuring of A-level and GCSE curriculum could be a whole episode on its own but I think it's hard to argue with the basic premise that Professor Winston has there. A huge part of the education system needs to be reformed. Yeah, and a lot of our experts on, on today's episode have been saying something similar, that education does need reform. Um, but, you know, the pandemic is, is not the first time that there's been conversations about scrapping exams. Here in the UK, in, in 1946, the Ministry of Education formally announced that external examinations for 16-year-olds would be abolished. And, of course, it never happened in the end due to a lack of support. But we came very close. 
So how likely is it that teacher assessments, as we've been doing under COVID, could ever fully replace examination? Well, I asked Professor Winston exactly that question. Here's what he had to say. I doubt it. I think it's very unlikely for lots of reasons. I think one of the big reasons with regard to university entrance at the universities like mine, the, the Russell Group universities, are very keen on making sure that we take, not unreasonably, the, the children who are best at doing the course because what they're concerned about is that people will enter university without the basic prerequisite to get through that course safely and not in fact find that they drop out. So that's, I think, a big problem. But certainly if we had a more streamlined approach to education, we could get round that. I think he's saying that entrance exams are an important way to make sure that young people who are going to join a course have the basic abilities to get through it. Yes, exactly. And, and I don't think it's an unreasonable stance. And it, it's also a position shared by our next guest. I'm Anthony McLaren. I'm Vice-Chancellor of St Mary's University in Twickenham, London. I've worked throughout my career in higher education. I started off working in uh, some universities, then I moved on to the national stage and joined UCAS, the University Admissions Agency. I was particularly interested in Anthony's experience with UCAS. Uh, as you know, it's an essential part of the university application process here in the UK. And of course, heavily reliant on exams. Um, but to answer your original question, Stephen, um, here is what Anthony had to say about the possibility of teacher assessments replacing exams. I mean, clearly teachers know their students extremely well. And I've got no doubt that teachers are extremely responsible in the assessments that they make of student capability. So let me, let me say that up front. Could they completely replace assessments or exams? I'm not sure about that, and that there's a very good reason for that, really. A key part of the examination process, if I can put it that way, which may include formal exams, may include other forms of assessment, is about bringing to bear an external view. Now, teachers know their, their students very well, but by definition, they, they're not bringing an external view. They may have worked with those students over a number of years. A robust assessment process, I think, has to include an external view. And indeed, at university examinations, you know, the UK university system uses external examiners precisely for that reason, to make sure that the decisions reached by internal teachers and assessors can be calibrated against external benchmarks. And I agree with Anthony on that. I have to declare an interest and say I'm a big fan of his views on the education system. He has wide experience, not just in the UK, but Australia as well. Mm. And he's saying, quite rightly, I think, we need checks and balances. Teachers have an incentive to give their students high scores because it reflects well on the teachers. By having external examiners, those teacher decisions can be calibrated against external benchmarks, as you put it. Which makes sense. And I mean, another issue with teacher assessments is, is human bias. You can't be free of it, no matter how professional you are. If you don't like a student or they mess around a lot in your class, it may impact your assessment of them. The other issue with these teacher assessments and exams 
is that there is no real measure of a child's potential. And actually you've hit a, a central issue with, with this question and something that I spoke to Anthony McLaren about as well is that exams can measure what we do know and what we have studied but not really what we can do, so our underlying deep intelligence and, and untapped potential. And what's bizarre about this is the university application process, which is managed by UCAS in the UK, relies on schools making grade predictions. And um, here's Anthony McLaren again to, to explain. Exams are a very important part of the UCAS applications process. I mean, they're currently the subject of widespread debate, as they have been over the years, because the UCAS process depends upon uh, schools essentially predicting the results, usually A-level results, Scottish higher results as well, uh, sometimes the International Baccalaureate, but essentially predicting the results that their students are going to achieve. The jury is still out in many ways on whether they actually indicate potential. And often universities are as interested in potential as they are in achievement. They want to know what you're going to be doing over the next three or four years, rather than simply what you happen to achieve when you were sitting your school examinations. So, so how do we get around this? Most of the experts seem to agree that we do need exams in schools in some form, but they also acknowledge that exams need to change. Exactly. I mean, for me, I think we just, we can't throw the baby out of the bathwater, so to speak. We can't say exams aren't perfect, so they should be abolished. And, and it was very hard to find anybody who said, well, you know, let's get rid of exams completely. Uh, I think, by and large, they just need some reform. And I want to bring in Anthony McLaren again on, on what makes a good exam. They're often criticised as memory tests. That's probably a very poorly designed exam. A well-designed exam will test your ability to have understood and then be able to synthesize various sources of knowledge in ways which address the problem that the question is posing to you. So he's saying that the design of an exam is really, really important. And I think that's kind of core to this question today. And um, an example of that is, is you know, let's say you've created a maths exam, which was very wordy, but the student taking the exam doesn't speak very good English. That exam becomes about how good that student's English is and measuring their ability to understand the English in the question rather than their core maths capabilities. So in short, an exam is a tool, and if the tool is faulty, then the measurement you get will also, by logic, be faulty. Yeah, spot on. Now, are you ready for our final guest, all the way from Down Under? I certainly am. My name is Penny Van Bergen and I'm an Associate Professor of Educational Psychology at Macquarie University in Australia. A few years ago, Professor Penny Van Bergen was involved in a five-part series with the news platform The Conversation and the series was called Making Sense of Exams, so she felt like a good guest for this, for this podcast. And that series attempted to clear up some of the misconceptions around the examination process. My colleague Rod is an expert in educational assessment. I have the educational psychology background and we thought there were some myths about exams that we wanted to dispel. You know, one of which is that it's just exams or nothing. And we are sort of saying, look, it's about choosing the right tool for the right purpose. If it is about creativity, then an exam is usually not the best option. But if it is about that body of knowledge, then that's when you might want the exam. So exams aren't great for testing creativity, but they are good for testing, say, a breadth of knowledge. Yes, although interestingly, I looked into this and there is a pilot for creativity tests and it's being led by a scientist called Mario Piacentini from PISA, which is the Programme for International 
student assessment. And the plan is to present the exams framework and ideas for possible test questions to the OECD countries in November and see whether or not they're up for it. So we'll see, you know, maybe later this year there will be a creativity test in the future. What sort of questions would a creativity exam involve? Do, do you know yet? Yeah, so it's things like, for example, to explore students' written creativity. One example might be to ask them to provide captions for illustrations. In the social problems area, they might be asked to, to contribute solutions to big issues like pollution or water scarcity. And apparently all of the problems in this exam would be grounded in real-world situations that young people might encounter in school or as they enter the workforce or whatever. That's the idea. Well, the issue for me that keeps coming to mind is, of course, well, we're living in a digital age. I have my phone, uh, iPhone on me at all times, and so do most teenagers, a, a miniature computer on your body. Doesn't that undermine the need for exams when you have the world literally at your fingertips? Why do you need to memorise the, the, the square of the hypotenuse, the square root of 196? Yeah, it's a very fair point. And here I'm going to refer you back to our expert, Professor Van Bergen. The other myth that we often heard is, you know, if we've got mobile phones, we're walking around with knowledge in our pockets, then surely we don't need to know things. Um, but there's really good research that shows how the knowledge that you have helps you to assess what you find on Google and it helps you to critically analyse what you find. It helps you to search. Uh, you know, it turns out that when we don't have that base knowledge to start with, we're kind of really bad at, at looking for the right things and finding them. We tend to fall into conspiracy theories more easily. We're not very good at, um, at validating information. This I found really interesting. You know, if we don't have a base level of knowledge, we're likely to fall into the trap of confirmation bias. So in other words, we'll go searching for things that reaffirm our own viewpoints. And it means that we can often fall prey to conspiracy theories. As you were saying that, and as I was listening to Penny, I, I was nodding uh, straight away, because if there's one thing for certain, we, we do need fewer conspiracy theories at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you there. It's something that you and I speak about a lot, this huge surge in conspiracy theories over the last couple of years. You feel a podcast coming up. Yes, perhaps. maybe that's the next episode. <laughs> um, but, you know, as, as Penny is our last guest, I asked Professor Van Bergen to give us a closing statement uh, about our question. So what I think of the question, do we need exams in schools, is... Yes, we do want exams in schools. They're a useful means of assessing students' knowledge, particularly when we, want, when we want breadth of knowledge. And there's really good evidence that we can assess students' deep understanding of different topics. And so we don't want to lose that tool in our arsenal. But should we use exams for everything? No, there are times when they're not appropriate, including when we want to get at things like creativity, including when students are going to be not in the right headspace to do an exam. And sometimes when COVID has been impacting things that we can do in schools, then there may be an argument for not running exams at those times as well. Although I'm holding out hope on those creativity tests, I'd have to agree with Professor Van Bergen. You know, exams are great for quantitative subjects like maths and science and uh, geography, but I think creativity is, is too subjective, maybe, to, to properly test. I agree completely. You, you're right, Mari. I mean, they are a good measurement of what you've taken in, what you've learned, but they aren't always a great measurement of intelligence. The consensus seems to be that exams aren't going anywhere soon because they've yet to replace them with anything. Mm. But could 
face some much-needed reform as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, and I think the other thing that I, I took away from our guests was that we need to find a way of taking the pressure off young people and changing attitudes around anxiety during exam season. Yeah, absolutely agree. Thank you so much, Mari. Well, we're hoping you, our audience, will get in touch to tell us what you think about exams. Do you think we need exams? Or are there better ways of assessing abilities? Let us know. And if you have a question you would like answered, we'd love to get to the bottom of it on the next episode of The Answers Project. You can find us on CGTN Europe's Facebook or Twitter page. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or Spotify. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.